Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Thank you very much, everybody. We have a brand new smoking hot episode for you here today. We have my friend Clint McCoy out of Illinois. And oh boy, will this be a good time. Wow, that just came that just came naturally there, guys. Uh, I impress myself every now and then. Uh, this is unique because Clint is a vet. So he's an animal vet at an animal hospital, but he's also a serious deer hunter and habitat manager. So it's kind of, I wanted to get that perspective, right? So... I wanted to understand what advantages a vet might have. Someone who studies animals and, and is an animal doctor and can, can work on these things. Um, the view they might have versus, you know, mine or yours or, or anyone else's. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how he got into, you know, outdoors and the habitat work, uh, the current property he hunts, when he started, that sort of thing. We talk about invasives on here a little bit. Um, we talk about, his hunting strategy. We talk about a big buck he's after this fall with some really uh, Coke can size bases on that buck. He found his sheds. And then we talk about like a most impactful deer hunting setup or, or like a buck trap, as I like to call them, that he's created on his place. So what does that look like? What does his favorite and most successful setup look like? That way, when you guys are going into the woods this spring and summer and shaping your farms, you can maybe take a tidbit or two from this episode and and, you know, throw it, throw it at your own property. That's, that's what I do. So anyways, Clint McCoy from Illinois coming on here in just a second. <clears throat> we have some great news though. We're giving away the habitat hook, the fully extendable aluminum version from Nick nation, our partner at habitat podcast, the habitat hook, uh, it's habitathook.com. I always say it, I should probably come up with a better, a better, you know, sentence but i don't know how people go in the woods and hinge cut all day accurately and safely without using this tool so i have a brand new one 
We're giving away. Thank you for everybody who entered your email at habitatpodcast.com for the drawing. And the winner is Joe Norman. Joe Norman. Joe, you are Joe Norman242 at yahoo.com. Please reach out and I will get this brand new habitat hook shipped to your door, my friend. Thank you, everybody who uh, contributed in the, in the contest there. We're going to have more awesome giveaways this year with high quality equipment that we use. Speaking of high quality equipment, I want to tell you about Afflictor Broadheads. So I'm setting up a new bow and arrow setup here very soon, but Brian has been diligent the last like two months in setting up his brand new bow. Uh, he's shooting all different kinds of weights in front of his arrows. If you look, go back to the Ranch Ferry episode, we talk all about that. And uh, Brian's been driving pinholes and straight shafts through paper, paper tuning with his afflictor broadheads on. So we practice with our, our fixed blades. Like there's no excuses at this point. So they make a great tough broadhead. It is, you know, straight flying as long as you spend the time to tune your bow. Um, and we're just, a, we're just a big fan. I'm going to be shooting the 155 grain EXT again this year. The ferals are made in Ohio. The broadheads are, are assembled in Texas. I mean, what, what more can you want? So they fly great, extremely durable, and the penetration I'm getting is impressive. So, guys, check them out, afflictorbroadheads.com. I believe if you sign up for their newsletter and tell them Habitat Podcast sent you, you might even get a discount. So, thank you, Afflictor. I want to also talk about Morse Nursery. I was out on my friend uh, Brian's farm the other night. We are planting chokeberries. If you saw our, our Facebook post today, you saw we were out there, and he has 200 shrubs we're putting in, an open old farm field, and we're creating shape. We're creating edge, and we're also creating a funnel down to a tree stand. Imagine that. So get out there. Get your stuff on the ground. The shrubs all looked really good when they arrived at Brian. Um, he got the shrub survival kits, so you know they're warranted for a year. If anybody's interested, we are a dealer for Morse. It's getting a little late now, but they are shipping. Um, or if you want, you can go on morsenursery.com and use the code HABITAT10 for 10% off. Now, I want to thank the rest of our partners here. We have Packer Max Cult of Packers, the Habitat Hook, Michigan Whitetail Pursuit, Exodus Trail Cameras, the Squirrel at NutPlanter.com, VitalizeSeed.com, and First Light. Guys, I'm heading out this weekend for a camping trip in April with my family. Sounds a little crazy, but I will be rocking my First Light down liner the brooks jacket <laughs> all weekend i wear it every day so check them out firstlight.com let's get right into it with clint mccoy out of illinois all right guys we're back first of all we have our co-host mr brian hallbly brian how's it going tonight bud flying with the eagle tonight buddy oh Doing yeah well. little eagle rare ready to record some good podcast uh material with clint here heck yeah and then we have Mr. Clint McCoy from Illinois. How you doing, Clint? I'm good, man. I'm glad to be partnering with this with you guys. You guys are. Just, I stopped. Met you there at uh, just by happenstance up there. They're walking the ATA, and it's like, dude, we should talk sometime. Okay, bingo. 
<laughs> cool, man. Heck yeah. I, I saw you walking behind me. I'm like, I gotta go hold the door for this guy. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flag him down here and grab him. And, uh, it's, it's a great, it's a great show for, for that purpose. So the main reason I like going to that show is for networking and, um, oh, it's great. And, yeah. Run into guys like you and, and Brian and the likes and, uh, happy to have you on. So what's going on in Illinois tonight? What's you up to? How'd your basketball team do? I haven't caught up. Uh, you're doing that on purpose. <laughs> you're, you're doing that on purpose already. Well, um, Michigan's <laughs> dead too. So the whole big 10 is dead. Uh, I've got my I've got my Illini gear on tonight. I saw it. I uh, I didn't do that on purpose. I probably should have thought that wardrobe over a little bit better. Yeah, they died, man. All these Big Tens that we follow all year long, man, they just get to beating and banging on each other. It seems like, and then when you get to the dance, you know, they run their wheels off. It's like grain trucks fighting Ferraris. You know, it's over with. Man, I hate to see them go, but. Yeah, in Illinois tonight, it's um, cold, windy, and like winter-like. Southeastern Illinois is where we're at, and uh, had a front move through. You know, we're trying to scout for youth turkey right now, and boy, it's been tough getting on these birds. We're still in winter flocks. It's been pretty cold. It's going to get cold tonight, and spitting rain, kind of muddy out, kind of gross for almost April. Well, yeah, it's it's not much different up here. Um, we got dumped on with a bunch of rain yesterday windier than all get out today uh like real windy so maybe it'll dry some fields out i don't know um just waiting for that corner to turn got some trees need to get in the ground got some acorns need to get in the ground got some apple trees need to go prune that sort of thing so you know it's it's that time and uh i'm glad to be sitting here talking habitat with you two so let's get this thing rolling um Let's hear about who you are, where you're from, your background. You kind of covered where you're from, how you, know, how you got into habitat work and uh, deer hunting and, and the whole likes. Oh, yeah. So I'm from southeastern Illinois, a little town called Palestine. We just grew up here in Crawford County on a family dairy farm. So I always had kind of an animal background. Um, and I don't know how I got into hunting. That's a good question. Like, as a dairy farmer, my folks, you know, none of my no one took time for leisure uh, you know, in dairy farming. And uh, I picked it up from an uncle of mine, and, you know, but back then I was a kid just using a pump shotgun. And I'm like, how can I have more days afield than just seven a year? Bow hunting. And that's how it went. And, you know, just uh, kind of do it yourself kind of guy. Really. I don't own a bunch of ground. we got a small family farm here and do a lot of knock and talks, a little bit of public, just, Kind of do it yourself, guy. I'm a veterinarian by trade for a living every day, which is kind of a weird, like, I, I see the irony in between the two. I'm a walking contradiction, always have been, I suppose. But, um, uh, yeah, you spend all week patching them up and all weekend trying to take one down. You know, it's just kind of <laughs> what we do. Yeah, it's kind of what we do. I don't. I don't think it's too ironic. I don't think it's too contradictory. I mean, we all we all care for the animals, right? I think, yeah. I I I, I have no problem with it. You'd be surprised. Really? Yeah. Sometimes um, you definitely get way more positive vibes than the negative by a tenfold on that note. But you'd be surprised sometimes. Yeah, especially coming from people in the veterinary industry. Believe it or not, that's. It's not fun, but you just, dude, it's legal. Um, and, oh, it helps 
contribute to Habitat with every dollar I spend, uh, you know, if we're helping them, you know, I'm going to keep doing it hell with them. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. So what's your, what's your dairy farm like? What kind of ground is it? Is it a lot of, a lot of ag? Do you have any topography? What's the soil oh, yeah. like? Anything so like that? Around home here, it's prairie, uh, it, but it gently rolls. And it's not like the deep rolls that you'll see out in Iowa uh, and add ground out there. It's real gentle flowing. A lot there are some places it pancake flat. And then there are other places it has a little bit of topo, but very minimal. You have to uh, you know, pick and choose your hills wisely around here. You don't have a lot to hide behind. Um, close to the Wabash River is where we're at. We have a lot of mixed hardwood timber, um, a lot of small wood lots too. We don't have anything bigger than I think maybe the biggest woodlot I hunt is probably uh, 80 acres tops. Um, other than public, public course has got quite a bit more up on it, but a uh, um, lot of broken timbers, little bitty tiny woodlots, mostly hardwood. It's all mixed ag, you know, corn, soybeans. On the dairy farm here, we raise um, quite a bit of alfalfa, and we're like the only alfalfa around ever. And, uh, you know, there's a couple other people that raise it. Like 10 miles away but that's been a plus as you can imagine but yeah um, but uh yeah is that, so is that straight alfalfa you're running yeah excellent but it's ag stuff you know it's leaf hopper resistant and roundup ready and they you know get squirted and it, it's you know makes for good cattle crop I and mean, it's it's nutritionally i think pretty similar to whitetails more whitetail specific blends but you see deer out in it all summer they don't seem to mind absolutely so compared to back when you were younger has the property changed has the area changed in terms of habitat or um you know farming what what's you know, prairie i like I like hearing that uh tell me about kind of then and now um when I was a kid, no joke, not to tangent that section of my life real quick, but like the one of the biggest deer experiences of my life that really like went, okay, I have to deer hunt now. Um, a friend of mine, Dan Ramsey and me, we had two junkie beagle dogs when we were little big kids, shooting 410 shotguns, pushing up a big old wide fence row that had some cedars in it, right? And on, on a either side of the fence rows, this big ag field. Well, our dogs start raising hell in there and it's coming my way. I'm thinking a rabbit's going to bust out of here. I'm going to crack him. But instead this giant, massive, like I just crystallize in your mind how big he is, big bodied, like ghost white horns. He comes flying by me at like literally just a few feet away from me. We were so close and that dog hot on his heels on his heels. And it, it, it made me go, uh, why am I chasing rabbits when, when <laughs> seriously? And it was the click. And so the, the one of the, where I'm segueing into that, all these fence rows you're just talking about, that buck busting out of, they're gone. Everybody's got big planning equipment now, um, you know, 30 footers or little bitty ones anymore. Uh, so everybody's got big, wide ag ground. Everybody wants to farm. Um, in larger swaths and a lot of these fence rows are becoming broken down we don't have near the small game that we did uh, we don't have definitely definitely don't have um the 
the ever, type of evergreen like uh, cedars that we used to have. Um, we certainly don't have as much cover in general. Um, in the woodlots around home, in the last 20 years, one of the biggest things that's changed around here is logging practice. Um, in the late 80s, everybody went, the mature stands of timber in the late 80s when interest prices really got high for ground, uh, maybe mid to late 80s um, where farmers were paying, they wanted to cash some of that um, you know, natural resource in and they logged the shit out of everything. And so in the early to mid nineties, when I started deer hunting, boy, everything was thick as hell. It was literally there, there was some really nasty stuff around, uh, you know, 25 years later. And now a lot of that stuff looks like a city park and, or has a shit ton of invasives growing in it now. Um, you know, a bush honeysuckle or autumn olive or green briar. And so that's the shift that I've seen in my lifetime over the years. And it's not anyone's fault or anything. I, I didn't mean to like throw farmers under the bus and say, oh, they're killing us all. Sure. That's not what I mean. Our forest management around here hasn't caught up with ag uh, management, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it just shows kind of where the priority is in your neck of the woods. Right. I mean, yeah. and same with Southern Michigan, it's farming. Um, and unless you got foresters and good programs for TSI and this and that pushing, I mean, high grade and go or cut the timber and go. And we see it all the time. I mean, it's, it happens all the time. Um, you know, we're going to be cutting on a guy's place this weekend. And one of the main things I want to watch out for after we cut is invasives coming back and taking over, you know, instead of natives. So. Um, but many people don't even, and I didn't know what that even meant a few years back. So I get it. Yeah. But it's cool though. Now that you guys think that people are starting to get the click, like, Hey, like I know a lot of farmers that don't set foot in their woods anymore. Yeah, hardly, but now they know what invasives are and they're starting to take some, uh, some note to, to that stuff. I think that's cool. Just getting the general word out, man. Yeah. So, Clint, there's been a lot of discussion about the uh, rise and fall of the Illinois deer herd. Do you think that that had something to do with it, what you're talking about, some of the old habitat getting too old? That's a good, that's a good question, Brian. I think it's multifactorial. Um, I absolutely think it's uh, a lot of mass production habitat that pulled from maturity. That may have something to do with it. But if you look at it in the contrast, the more sunlight getting into those pieces of timber creates more food in general. So I'm not certain it's a timber management thing, but if you think about how combines used to be in the late 80s, mid 80s, um, versus the efficiencies that we have now, um, I think if we look at broken farm country on a nutritional standpoint, a lot of our nutrition um, in those fields is no longer there for the herd that it used to be. As a kid, I used to see herds, I mean herds of deer, 50, 60, 70. You'd see them all over the place in these cornfields. As time has gone on and implements have gotten more and more efficient, it leaves less waste grain. And couple that with fall tillage being a common uh, practice, there's very little food left available for the whitetail 
that he doesn't have to work for, dig for, expend energy for. Um, so I think maybe that has, it all kind of ties together. Lack of cover is another one. Um, if these deer don't have a proper cover, uh, that's killing us here too. So it's, it's you know, it all mishmashes together, I think, Brian, to answer your question. It's not just a one thing. It's an amalgam of several. Sure. Yeah, so uh, you, it's an interesting point you bring up, and, and we talk about that a lot, how efficient the uh, farm equipment has become. You know, back in the day, 80s and 90s, like you're talking about, there might have been some more brushy hedgerows and, and things like that. Now they're able to run the corn and beans right up to the – cover and timber and whatever else is around them. They don't have to leave much that they can harvest. Yeah, and to that, to that point, uh, you, we talked about that buck busting out of uh, a little cedar thicket. You got thermal cover. We are sorely lacking thermal cover where we live. Now, I don't, we don't get a lot of cold um, like you guys do up there, our deer would die in about a week compared to what you guys are at, man. Really? Oh, shit. These are southern deer. Like, southern Illinois, everybody likes to think you're from the south. Well, you're kind of in between. One week, it'll be minus 17, and the next week, it'll be 60. And literally, that happened in the last month. But our deer, I feel like, um, when they go through a, like a two-week period of like super cold sub-zero weather without adequate thermal cover in, in proper areas close to food sources where they don't have to travel and spend a lot of energy to feed, I think that has to do with it too. Um, there's very minimal cedar-type trees and windbreaks for these guys unless they're in big, thick CRP. And you'll, you know, we can talk thermal cover all day long, but I, I think it's a... I think it's a mixture of a lot of different factors, Brian. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And, and we're seeing that in a, in a lot of places around the country for sure. I mean, that's one of the rewarding things that Jared and I get to go around and do our land plans and help some of these clients with their properties and try to bring it back to, to where it's gotten wrong and, and try to improve it the best that we can for sure. So, being a vet, do you have uh, enough time to get your habitat work done, or does that impact your your projects? And tell us a little bit about that. Oh no! Um, oh, we're as busy in my. I'm 17 years into the profession, and I'm as busy now as I've ever been. Um, boy, we're seeing as a hospital, we're trying to see yeah, 60 or 70 patients a day, plus eight or 10 surgical procedures, and. Yeah, it's a lot, um, but it's doable. Um, and I started, <laughs> I started teaching an animal science and an animal nutrition class at the local community college that I went to school here when I was a kid um, on my day off. So not very much time, Brian. <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's not much time, uh, but there's a whole ton of things on my list. <laughs> <laughs> so do you work a, a steady schedule or rotate? How's that work? Uh, four, four and a half, four and a half a week. Yeah. Okay. Steady. So that allows you a couple of days every week, at least to get something yeah. done. Oh yeah. Uh, my wife, Colleen knows Sunday is, uh, I'll probably not see you at all day. 
uh, <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, it, it's a day for all day work. Well, let's get into those habitat projects. What do you have going on right now? Um, we just got done frost seeding a little bit of clover. Um, we only have, since we've got on the farm here, since we've got so much alfalfa ground, we really don't have a lot of use for other legumes, you know, as a drawing attractant. Um, but we'll, we'll plant little tiny, um, what you call them kill plots, maybe of, of clover. Um, and we've got one long narrow and it's probably, oh man, he's probably 400 yards long by 50 yards wide. It's a big, long clover strip down along the edge of the timber. Um, and it's on the proper, like, good wind side for it and everything. They just frost-seeded that uh, not too long ago. And right now, as far as uh, habitat work, I'd like to be planting trees, but it's mud. Um, I have to wait for that for sure. Um, I have a little strip back here behind my house that we've been working on just planting uh I tend to be persimmon trees. I don't know why, I just do. Um, but um, just kind of taking care of that and did a burn around those little guys and just little tiny stuff. Um, I don't have, I don't own a bunch of ground, but one thing I have been working on on the family farm over several years is just whacking these stupid invasives out of it and making, and we made a dent in it um, and, and we could still do more. Um, and some of the like super shade tolerant maples and stuff like that, just, you know, clobbering, but it's mostly by hand and it's only on days when you're like, you know what, today would be a great day to work outside and I don't have anything <laughs> in season and I have nothing else to do. I probably should, I really need to, focus. if I had more time, I'd focus a lot of my efforts there. So the clover plot that you have, is that in between the uh, timber and the pasture? Oh yeah, right up against it. Okay. Yeah, right up against the pasture ground. You planting any uh, screening or anything like that? We should. Um, we thought about doing it, but we'd have to either move the fence or give up to get our drill in there and how it lays. I think we'd have to give up too much food space to screen it. It sure. really, as, as it lays, you really don't need much screen here as it lays because it's a top. And as long as you don't crest the top, everybody typically beds in the bottoms below to the west. And um, it, screening would be a great idea just to give them more security from the east for sure. Because I'm a firm believer. I don't. I, I definitely don't think deer like being in cow pastures. I mean, I've lived around here long enough and been on broken timber, prairie habitat long enough and watched these deer and watched cows since I was a baby boy. They just don't like each other. I don't know yeah, why. Yeah, um, I agree. But uh, that, uh, that that with that crest in that pasture, what sucks sometimes is, and it sounds stupid, but if we could put a screen in there that the cattle wouldn't slam, sometimes when you're walking them through the pasture and access, and some of the cows are like, oh, hey, let's go follow him right to the blind or to the tree stand. <laughs> and so then you got all these damn cows up against the fence, right up against your food plot. And that's a total bust. So we need to screen the cows, not the deer. <laughs> like you literally have to plan your route. Like sometimes we'll just turn, like I've figured it out over the last couple of years. If you want to start, stop that, you just go out there and run the feed conveyor for about 10 minutes before you go. There you go. Before you go to the woods and it sucks everybody in. See, 
the old decoy trick. Yeah, oh, man, that's that's a new one. I haven't I haven't heard screening from the cows on yeah, 177 episodes, so that's that's awesome. <laughs> Seriously, they get right up your tailpipe, and there's like 40 of them yeah. standing there, and there's deer can hear them, and I'm certain they can smell them. They're probably laying in bed, it's like, yep, nope, not going over there tonight. Early defeats the purpose. There was there was one time we were down in southern Ohio hunting, my buddy Jesse and I, and we parked in this in this cattle pasture and went down, dropped off in the timber, didn't see much, came back, and all the cows were standing around his truck, like looking real guilty, right? Like they just broke in and stole something type look on their face. Maybe that's kind of always how they look, but and we're sitting there like, this is weird. We get up there, they had licked all the Michigan road salt off his truck. Every square inch, every every square inch had a tongue mark in it on the whole Dodge Ram. I'm I'm not kidding. It was uh, it I'm was dying. hilarious. You couldn't, you couldn't make that up. I, we were like, "What is going on?" I'm like, "Dude, they licked your whole truck." I've seen him do that before. Um, like, if, especially around here, if you some of the things we've done did as kids, like ice fishing. You know, when you're 16, 17, first. We don't get much ice to begin with, so it's really special when we do. Um, and I've seen them do the same thing, but not to that degree. Holy cow! It sounds like, <laughs> sounds like they give it a new paint job. <laughs> it was awesome. It wasn't my truck, so it was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's so good. Yeah. So, Clint, do you have uh, many native persimmon trees around you, or, or is everything that you got that you've planted? You know, everything that I've got is stuff that I've, and I don't know my trees, but stuff that we've taken from the woods here. Um, we did get some, uh, we did get some plants through the NRC department, and I I couldn't tell you the life of me what uh, types of persimmons they were, but I, we planted a, oh, a, grove, a small grove of them just to take care of them and. I get tired of hunting them down in the woods, see, so when I want persimmon pudding or persimmon uh, cookies, <laughs> like, I want to go, like, yeah, let's go out back to the backyard and gather them up and bring them in. That's sure. no joke why they're there. <laughs> and, for the deer, and for the deer, for the deer, too, but also for me. And the invasives, what kind of invasives are you battling over there? Mm. Bush honeysuckle, like, you would not believe. Yeah. It, it's, it is a disaster. And, and some of these woods that got logged in those like 80s and 90s that didn't get done, I don't want to say they didn't get logged the proper way, but boy, they got really clobbery with it and spread those uh, invasives all over the place, it seemed like. In one spot, it's like a hardwood top that's like sets up perfect. It's got a couple big draws in it, it's a nice big 40 acre square. Good big hardwood trees in it. Um, the invasives just were starting in on it when I no, I was maybe 20, 25. And so in the span of about 20-ish years, that invasive bush honeysuckle has choked out that whole woods. It is taken from there is not an inch a man can walk through. It started on the south end of that timber and it there's not a square inch of it that doesn't have it in there. That whole place is ruined from it, I think. And, you know, that's not, I, I hunt on permission on that piece. 
Um, but no joke, I won't set foot in there to look for a shed. Uh, I won't. If I do, I can't walk the, the next two days because I'm like, I have to crawl through it all. It's awful. So we fight that a ton here, Ryan. It's the worst. Now, are the, are the deer bedding that or using that at all just because it's cover? Or, and then I have a follow up to that. Um, I'll ask after. If you want my honest take, I, mean, I, I try to study a lot of buck beds or deer bedding in general. We all do. My honest take on it is no, um, as far as selecting for it. There are some that bed there locally, and a lot of it is typically they have a terrain advantage um, or a site advantage. But I've, I've got so many thickets of that honeysuckle that's just a bush honeysuckle that's taken over. And, and autumn olive is also another one you kind of deal with down here, too. Same way, same, same type of shit, right? But yep. when I feel like when a piece of timber gets so chock full of it like that, A, the whitetail's visibility is way reduced, and B, he doesn't want to get all tangled up in a bunch of shit if he has to make some movements real quick when the bad guy's slipping up on him, right? So I feel like the only time I see those deer in that 40-acre chock full of bush honeysuckle is in the dead of winter, when they're down un below in those low val uh, low uh, spots on those south facing slopes, that's about okay. the only time I ever see them in there. Now you'll find some deer beds in there, and you'll have guys swear up and down that deer bed in in um, bush honeysuckle, autumn and stuff like that. Yes, it sir. Be in, it, they might. They may be individualized deer, but I just don't see it all that often. What do you guys think about that? Well, that's. That's a good question. And the reason I ask is probably you already know, like a lot of guys will say, Hey, my woods is thick, you know, that's, uh, it's great. It's already where it needs to be. And it's, it's all BH or autumn olive, um, deer bedding autumn olive on my 15. Um, were they bedding something better if there was something better there? Probably. Uh, but I'm surrounded by it on three sides anyways. So dealing with what I have there, it, it works for me, but, uh, it's hit or miss. I mean, we're when we recommend, we don't, yeah, we recommend get rid of it and let, let a native come up. That was just my, my second question where you are killing this stuff and you have been successful eradicating it. What are you finding that comes up? Are you running a fire through there and, and what comes up? Um, Does anything come up? Like, tell me about what you're seeing in terms of a success there. I, I haven't had, had enough years of experience of okay. doing this yet. Um, but the one corner that I started in, I'm, I'm definitely seeing more shade tolerant trees spring up real quick. Um, even though you may not want them necessarily, they're a hell of a lot better than stuff like that. Um, sure. But, but I haven't done it for long enough uh, to give you an honest take on that yet. No, you're good. Appreciate the honest take. That's for sure. Um, now we asked you, you know, a little bit, about being a vet and and you you talk about you know you deal with people who wonder why you're a hunter and this and that how does how does being a vet affect your your habitat and or hunting strategy because you're a hell of a you're a hell of a deer hunter i'll tell you that um God, and lucky dude we all do yeah well <laughs> well i i just saying you 
some of the deer that I watch you chase are, are pretty freaking cool. And uh, so I'm wondering, you know, do you have this inside information? Like, do I need to go to veterinary school to become, you know, a hunter like like you are? Or I guess help me out here with <laughs> what advantages do you have? A buddy of mine, he's a deer hunter, and I was telling he joking around with me a couple years ago. He said, "You ever watch that movie, The Terminator, where it shows what the Terminator can see and it's running all those data points?" So I think that's you because you've got anatomy and physiology and all that other shit going on there. I'm like, that's a fair analogy, but it doesn't make me a better deer hunter. I mean, this deer hunting <laughs> thing is no kidding, dude. This deer hunting thing is luck, but but does it? Does it make you? I think you could make an argument. That it might make you better. I, it doesn't. You don't have to be a veterinarian to learn about things like ruminant nutrition and um, the breeding cycles and hormone structures of deer. And you don't have to be a veterinarian to learn the anatomy and the physiology and, and things like that. It just takes self-study. And I've always been a deer self-studier ever since that damn deer run out in front of me in front of that beagle dog. Like we've all I've always been a deer hunter first before I even picked up a weapon. Um, but then when the vet thing came along, it it just makes a good mishmash, I guess. Uh, that's the best way I can. It's just spending time studying the critter period that's all sure. it is that's all it is sure and, and i appreciate your your humble response i i know uh, there's got to be something in there so here's the way i see it i think i think and, and i've noticed this over the past few years we get into this habitat nerds that brian and i are i i think that we can see things when we walk through the woods that maybe i wouldn't have been able to see 10 years ago right so, and again, like you said, self-study, it's getting out there as experience um, from a vet point of view. Is there anything like that that sticks out to you? Or is it still just a woodsmanship, um, whitetail type learning curve? It's all the above. But I would, like you said there, Jared, I, and, and you've probably done it too, Brian, over the last, like even the last five years, like I'll revisit a spot that I haven't been to in a long time, but I'm looking at it with a different eye. You know, it's like that second sight. It's the more you look at these scenarios, especially hunt scenarios and stand placements and so forth, the more you study it, the more you look at it, the better you get. Well, if you haven't been to a spot and you've been getting better, you go to that spot and you're like, Shit, I was doing this all wrong. Or you, you, you can throw another take on how to utilize it for a hunt. You know what I mean? It, it, it definitely takes study. That's all it is. It's just work, dude. It ain't nothing else other than work. <laughs> yeah, it's just doing it. Yeah, you can add so many adjectives to it. I guess whatever your favorite one is, but like people that think critically and and somebody with a biology and science background or mind, if you want to say like you, I've noticed that with a lot of people that are very successful deer hunters and habitat managers, they just have a way of being able to think critically and do things different and react faster to take care of whatever their goals are. And so, 
you know, like I said, we could go on with as many adjectives as we want, but you're exactly right. Yeah, that's a good take, Brian. Critical thinking is a good. I, I feel like, like, and this isn't, a, you know, a humble brag or anything, but like, when I, as a veterinarian, to make the link, I have to think critically every single day. Like, my patients literally can't verbalize to me, "Hey, doctor, this is what is wrong with me," and I've got to break them down and pull blood work and do diagnostics and have to put the puzzle together and when you, it's no different in the deer woods. You got puzzles to put together around every tree. No kidding. No kidding. Yeah, I could have, I should have called you a couple of weeks back dealing with some dog, dog stuff. I had a bunch of questions. Should have put that together. I wasn't critically thinking. Um, <laughs> yeah, Brian, that was a, a great comment though. I should have, I should have asked you the question as well. That's, it's like it's like almost uh, like an engineer, right? They they see things a little bit differently too, um, more so than, or, or maybe it's like the builder compared to the architect, right? You can, you can design it up this way, and then going out and putting it, you know, hammering a nail to wood could be a different different formula. Um, okay, all right, I'm satisfied with that answer. I like to keep this moving to. Talk about the buck you're hunting this fall and kind of relate it into your shed hunting. I know you guys do some shed hunting down there. Um, I think I saw a picture of some Coke can size bases. Was that you? No? Secret information? <laughs> Remember that uh, Tom Hanks meme? From, or Tom Hanks. Tom Cruise from Top Gun clicks his pin. That's classified. <laughs> no, it's actually not classified. I'll tell you about it. I'll show it to you. Oh, oh boy. Well, if you guys aren't watching the video version of this, you should be. <laughs> so let me give you a backstory here. This is a buck we call the Heartbreak Kid, HBK. I'm a closet professional wrestling fan. Always have been. I'm a Hulkamaniac OG. Uh, we named him Heartbreak Kid, though, because he, he, when we first started meeting up with him in the summer, first time you saw his photos on truck camera, it was like, whoa holy shit here, this is a monster, and I don't know anything about him. Total noob to the place. Like, stop you in your tracks, heartbreak, right? So we start working on him. Where he was at in the summer this year was covered in corn, and my topography, I couldn't do anything with it to see his movements in and out of the timber. Just chalk is a corn jungle. And so we had to do a lot of our stuff on foot in the summer and with trail cameras. And we were pretty successful with getting a lot of photos of him. So he was, he was like number two on the list or so, like one of the ones we really wanted. And boy, and I started hunting him around the rut and he was, we were just a step behind this deer. About every, he backdoored us twice, caught our winds twice, me and him both, two different stands, like, it's total kicky in the ass. That's why he got the name HBK. Like, <laughs> um, but he was, you know, long and short of it, we picked these sheds up. And we've been in lots, lots of winter scouting for him. And where he's going to be at this year, beans as far as the eye can see. And with topography that I've got, I've already got a couple stands hung for the summer where I can slip in underneath and get up on top and glass all night in those 
I'm facing dead square west, so the summer sun's going to be really hot on you until it goes down. But you'll be able to see the, all that shaded bean line that they feed in and yep. you know, put the squeeze on him, hopefully. <laughs> but this way, it looks like, honest to God's story on these sheds. It sounds like bullshit. I'm making it up, but I'm not. Um, my mom lives a long, long ways from where this deer is at. Like, we're talking unheard of distance. And she says, hey, I found the shed in my yard today. And she lives in the middle of nowhere where there's no trees, like prairie type stuff, right? This is the one she finds in her yard. And it's miles from where we got him. And wow. Base. So he's got a big old fat split brow on there. He's decent there. And a neighbor boy of mine found his other side. I don't know if you can see it or not. Found oh, his yeah. other side. And this is the heartbreak side. He's got these weird. He had another big flyer point here. Like oh, yeah. I guard. He had another one there. But he's a really he, neat deer. And when he sits on his head, he shadows by themselves. Don't look like much in your hand, maybe. But when he sits on his head, he's way wide, dude. Like he's got like a 20, I don't know, 24 inch, 25 inch spread. But yes, sir. PK's on the list. And it's weird. Like he sheds and we pick him up. It's just bullshit luck for one. Um, but for but it is, it's just stupid luck. I didn't pound in his area looking for those sheds where he was feeding. My boy almost got a shot at him in January in the winter, and we've been pounding that area for weeks trying to find these sheds, and they're like, oh, several miles in the opposite direction and in territory that's literally like flat wide open prairie. And we're like, what the hell do you do with this? Like the information, I mean, you know, like, yeah, what do you make of it? You know, it's weird, but he's he's definitely public enemy number one. I really, I don't know why, but I got the itch for him bad, real, real bad. Oh, I can see why. Yeah, he's yeah. not. <laughs> I can see why too. When they backdoor us like that and they get around me, that really just. Man, that just drives me crazy when I've got one that I've been. You guys probably know it, too. You've been working on one, and you whips your ass. Oh, yeah. And it's just you're so close to closing the deal, and you just got the bad luck stick that day. Like, nah, those, those ones really get under my skin. So what, what did you learn from that when, when he backdoored you or your boy? Because I know when I got – I got – backdoored or or straight up beat one morning this fall as well um i learned something about it any what, what comes to mind when you think about your setup or changing from for this year or what are your thoughts absolutely what my setup's problem was when he hit us uh that day we were we were tag team hunting and we had neglected the doe bedding area position from his travel route. And so we kind of put ourselves on the down or the poor wind side of those transition trails, those bucks we use to go on the downwind side of those go bedding areas. I should have been way further up higher. So our thermals were, would take away that scent up over the tops where these does are bedding. And I, I should have been on 
the hard downwind side of that doe bedding area and it killed it totally killed us and and it won't happen again oh man that's tough to hear and i always wonder about that when when guys say you know i got a picture of him i should have been in the stand that day he was on the camera right by the stand and you always wonder if well did he circle way down window that stand first like he did for you well that's checking that's how we know he backdoored us. Um, right. We got him on camera doing it even. Troy saw go. it, and I he pulled the cards later. He definitely did it on, on intentionally. Jeez. Yep. Yeah, and you wonder how many times it happens to you, like, and you don't even know about it. Like, right. Absolutely. It could be happening every day, and you wouldn't know. <laughs> Well, that kind of, yeah, exactly. And there's certain habitat things that we do, you know, to avoid some of that. Uh, but and or certain terrain features you can take advantage of to avoid things like that. But uh, kind of segueing to my next point here, what would be one of your most impactful hunting setups that you've created, like a like a big buck mouse trap that's bulletproof or that has worked well for you? Um, let's talk about that. Maybe a a success story where you know they weren't back doing you they weren't able to to get one on you and it's just it's a solid spot yeah so there's a it's a decoy spot and um it really wasn't a lot of habitat work but it is on the fringe of it there's this little point with thumb that sticks out of this timber and it's on the very high spot. It's wide open, vast prairie field. And there's these two great big walnut trees along the edge. that are just, I mean, coated in vines when I first start thinking about this setup, like it would take you days and, and it was, the trees were so big, they were really difficult to do anything like climbing wise with them uh, to be safe. And so I had to like, you know, go through with a handsaw and some nips and even a tobacco, like this guy here, like a tobacco hatchet, like whack it back. Oh, wow. Yeah. So whack it back and squirt it. But I had to do that. Like, I don't know, early in the, early in the June, probably before I could even use the damn tree. Well, I worked my ass off to do that, and there's a fence break right in behind me. And on that's just another added bonus. I just lowered one of those woven wire fences down with some zip ties and made a nice little avenue to hop out onto the high spot if they, they wanted to. Along the short of it, I hung that set there and finally, and it was a total bastard, but it worked. Um, I put that decoy out and it was standing corn all the way around me, and where that point sticks out. Is all waterway pivots, and I shot um, a buck I call some Sam over it. And it. That was a lot of work. It wasn't a big habitat change, but it was managing plants. Oh my gosh, the, it was that was a, a lot. It was a lot of work. It was the hardest I've ever worked trying to get one uh, stand in a tree. I can't believe it paid off, but it, it just shows you it doesn't take brains it just takes work with this stuff man it's like what you guys do like it's work it's work yeah no kidding i think um you know a couple things it sounds like there and that you did right you know being the right tree with the cover and and then the the fence line exactly you know it could have been 
a ditch or something that's keeping keeping these deer from going behind you or that high point you use. That's see that I'm, that's what I'm glad I asked because that's something to think about in an area with more topography. Deer definitely like that. Yeah. You know, my my land's flat as as a table, so why it's kind of interesting works, to why this works so well. That thumb as it sticks out right in behind as it joins the timber. It's just totally impassable ravine behind it. So you can use that structure like a pick. And exactly. they have they have to work around you in that field and engage that decoy if they can see it. And it's absolutely deadly. And if you use it on any west, you can you can kill one every day of the week there if they don't <laughs> go behind you like that. Is your wind just blow back off into towards that ravine? Yeah, just into the jump. Yep. yep. That's awesome. Yeah, I was just down in Mississippi on a client property, and the guy has this big impassable ravine on his would be due west side, but they they don't get the west winds like we do, which was surprising to hear. They're more of an east, a north, or a south. So I'm like, well, that's perfect then. Um, just like you're saying, have the the wind blown off, blow your sun off into that ditch. Um, so yeah, good good mouse trap. What, what was that buck you killed? What did you call him? Son, Son of Sam. Son of Sam? Yeah. I think I saw it. You, you make a video on that one? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that video. Yeah, I live, I won one Liberty, so I'm not a marksman, but. <laughs> Been I, there, I, done I, that, buddy. Well, man, when you're self, you know how it is. When you guys do that self-film thing. Yep. It's tough. When you've got a, a non-typical, you've been chasing your ass off for two years standing in front of you like licking his chops at this decoy and he literally just comes out of the corn i'm like well there he is oh my god i'm panicking <laughs> it, like instant panic and it's hard to get the camera on and get everything lined up and he's circling this decoy two or three times it just must nerve-wracking hunt but um, we we you know, live one long liberty and we left him all day and um, a friend of mine has a really really good dog he's a good houndsman and we can't we went right in and found him. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I got no problem letting him lay. I uh I've hit that liver too many times, so I hear you. Oh yeah, it's so critical. Um people don't realize, you know, you go back to this vet thing and where it ties in, like with the liver hit. Let's talk about that real quick. So like the liver has got a couple of big vessels that feed it, you know, big ones. One's branching right off the aorta, and the vena cava is taking the blood away from the liver, all the blood away from the liver. But if the li if you hit the liver dead square, it's just like this giant capillary bed full of tiny, littler, smaller vessels, right? So a liver hit deer, unless you're hitting one of those great, what we call the quote, great vessels, one's feeding it. If you don't hit one of those that are under pressure, he's going to seep. It will bleed, and it'll keep bleeding and bleeding and giving that hemoabdomen, um, but it's going to be slow. So everybody says, I give liver hit deer 12 hours. I err on the side of caution on them, uh, or excuse me, six hours. Um, I err on the side of caution and give them as much as a gut shot deer uh, every time. Liver can bleed fast. It can bleed slow. It just depends on what vessels are hit. Yeah, they're not going anywhere. I I try to yeah. stay patient and and give them a little extra time just because of what you just said. I mean, it's if they're dead in six hours, they're going to be laying there at twelve. 
And unless you've got a major coyote problem or some other thing that you're really worried about, I don't see any reason to go the shorter distance. Yeah. And I hate tracking at night too. Like despise it. I'm red green deficient and I can't, well, I can't, I really, I can't see blood to save my bacon. I'm terrible. Um, So I like, I'd rather track in the day, any day, like for sure. Any day. Yeah. Well, shoot, I I don't have a problem seeing colors, and I hate tracking at night. So I'm yeah, I can't imagine. You know, it's like you can't even see 30, 40 yards ahead of you. Something you would walk up upon the next day and be oh duh. You know, it's like I don't know, I, I I've learned over the years not to push at all. I'll let it lay all night. It Best thing to do works. It works. Where you guys are at? Do you guys have any dog services available to you? Yeah, I've used one um, one time, and then I used one with my brother one time, and it was simply amazing. And I will always have one on standby, no matter yeah. what. Brian, how about you? I've never personally used one, but I've been a uh, present for a friend that used one in PA. They're legal in PA in Ohio, so I've I've been around some of them, but never had to use one. Yeah. I'll- I'll tell you my story real quick. I liver shot deer. Um, imagine that. Uh, it was my first year. I shot on my 15 acres, 10 point, And it was coming in, self film, got him to stop, shot, mule kicked, ran around me, wasn't falling over. Um, about the same place I shot one of them this year, actually. And I just watched him slowly walk out, flicking his tail, walk out in, into this big, 400 acre swamp and I knew it was liver hit. I could see some blood and he's not falling over. So start doing the math and you figure it out. Well, then the, then it starts to rain like it always does. Right. So you get the dog guy on the phone. He can't show up till I think it was about nine 30 PM. And I shot it at probably six. Um, he showed up right as it started to downpour and that dog, we had blood, decent blood for a little while, and then we ran out. That he that dog took that deer scent in standing water, like 550 yards, and we found him still alive. <laughs> so it's like un unbelievable um, in standing water. And the dog was one of those. I think it was a wiener dog. Probably a better term for it that I'm just lacking, but um, dachshund or or something, but. In standing water, that dog through a swamp. It's impressive. It was Amazing. insane. I was just my my mind was blown. Um, un- unbelievable. It's Couldn't cool. Believe. I've been on some dog tracks, and, and that this appeals to the vet side in me a little bit too. When you come, when you, my the, the fellow I use, he's helped me out a couple times, and uh, you know, a couple one when you're not sure, he's a good guy to have on your side. Sure. Um, but he'll call me and say, hey, what do you think about this hit situation and spitball anatomy ideas about it? And uh, when that dog gets to working, you can see it click. And then it's going. And the dog will stop and check. But uh, and a lot of a lot of how a dog works in the woods is based off of, off of exactly how the deer smell us. Uh, you know, it's it's volatilized scent that's in the air, and man, those dogs can 
they'll cut the wind with their nose if you watch them on a windier night and they'll just skip the goddamn blood trail. They'll go, you know, they're hooking into that wind cone and then they'll pick up that trail. Like it's amazing to me um, just to sit back and watch a dog that knows how to work. And when you see that motor turn on, like, whoop, whoop, there it is. You're, you're off to the races in, man. You know, it's on. No kidding. Now, can you train a can you train a lab to do that as well? I know they're not hounds, um, but I just I didn't know. I, I certainly think you can train any canine um, okay. to 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 uh, to, to scent trail or blood trail deer. Um, a friend of mine uses wire hair dachshunds, you know, little big guys. Um, of course, my uh, the other one I was just telling you about to help me find Sam. Uh, he's a bloodhound man, and if you want if you want pure olfactory power, there's yeah. nothing better than bloodhound. Um, I do know a fellow, and I treat his dogs for. Um, he is a search and rescue guy, um, and he takes his dogs over for um, you know deceased or missing persons or whatever all over the country. Um, and uh, you know he uses um, a Doberman of all things, so um, you know wow. they, they do it. Yeah, and. Um, you know, they're you can train a dog to scent, I think, scent trail anything, it's the handler that starts it. You know, they, it, sure. they've got to find the click, but the handler delivers it, sure. Okay, good stuff. Well, Clint, I got one more for you. Uh, we always wrap up with asking our guests what your favorite tree is. Oh, my, you're gonna think yeah. persimmon tree, right. Well, you kind of led us with that, yeah. so I'm, uh, no, I'm going to swerve you. <laughs> uh, it's probably not very many people's favorite tree, I wouldn't guess. I like a beech tree. Um, around here, I've got a special kind of connection with this beech tree I got behind my house here. One of my relatives got their name carved in it from like 1938. That's cool. And she's my aunt, my dad's sister. But my grandmother passed away before I was even born, so she's kind of like stand-in. Well, her name's carved in that old beach back there. And I like those beach trees, too, on a strategic side of things now. They hold their leaves nice and late in the hardwood timber. And up top in the hardwood, it's bare come leaf drop. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat either near or in a beach with those leaves and had stuff all around me, and they don't even know it. Great white tail cover. And another thing too, I like those beech trees. How they they'll have those little offshoots there, right just above the ground, right at scrape pipe level. Oh and yeah, you you uh, find all kinds of good interior scrapes on those. Um, just a phenomenal tree. And I like too the you know, people that carve their names in them. I think they call them like arbor lifts or something like that, where people carved their names in them years ago, or whatever. I just like seeing them and going. It's pretty cool. Somebody from 1948 was here and. Here I am, you know, so yeah, that's, that's why my beach tree's on the list. I like it. I like <laughs> it. We, yeah. We, uh, we have a bunch of those in, in Duncan's woods, which is this wood park where I'm in the town I'm from. And there's names in there from, I couldn't even tell you when my, I think my dad's name is one of those from when he was a kid. Uh, and to your point, I was just up at our Northern Michigan property this past weekend and it's partner April and there's still leaves on some of those little beach trees up there um wow. all winter long you know so 
Yeah, I understand that. Uh, it, okay, we've been asking this kind of a, a part two part of the question. If you had one implement you could choose for habitat work moving forward for the rest of your life, only get one, what would it be? Well, if I only had one for the rest of my life and I couldn't have any other ones. Now, are we talking yeah. big implements, small implements, or hand tools? I, you know, I think the question was kind of like best implement in your opinion. And I think I just threw on the whole rest of your life thing to make it more dramatic. So whatever you want. <laughs> if we're calling a saw an implement, it's 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 definitely either if we're talking hand tools as implements. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. A saw would qualify. Yeah, saw would yeah. qualify. This guy right here. Oh. Like, I'm not kidding you, like, because I'm just beating the shit out of this um you know invasive stuff i found this tobacco hatchet at like an antique shop in kentucky where they grow tobacco right yep and i'm like i'm gonna try this thing just to see what it'll do and it'll thump the tar out of those little bitty um yeah uh, uh, invasives that we were just talking about autumn and bush honeysuckle it'll slice right through them just like click, quick as a hiccup. You don't even have to make more than one stroke. And a lot of times uh, you pack that in a good set of nips um, or like, um, like those little ratchety, like, oh, I don't know. I got some over here. Those like Fisker's brand ratchet uh, loppers. Yeah. They're, yeah. You know, they're yeah. about yay long. You combine those two. I couldn't live. I could not live without those where I live to create good deer structure. And one of the things, like to that note, like when sometimes I'll with that bush honeysuckle, I'll just take the opposite approach. Sometimes I'll clear out an area that I either a need to shoot or b like I want to funnel them by, and I do a lot of that with just hand tools. Ah, very interesting strategy right there. Save that little one for the end. I like it. It's like a two for one deal. Like, hey, I'm. A, <laughs> Getting rid of these garbage trees. Oh, and I want to shoot a boomer right here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Funnel them through. I like it. Well, Clint, hey, I appreciate you coming on, man. Appreciate your time. Uh, it's always sure. been good chatting with you. And and let's hear, you know, where the listeners can can read some of your articles, maybe, or, or find out more, more about you. We haven't covered the magazine yet either. Oh, yeah. So I've been writing for North American Whitetail lately. We just we just put out a uh, Kind of a coffee table style. Uh, this this magazine is kind of thick card stock. It's their um, land management guide for habitat stuff, and they've got a lot of good articles in it. Um, Dr. Kroll, um, he's got a, several in it. Uh, they let me write a couple. Um, I, I got a couple about um, how ruminant nutrition fits into some of your habitat management decisions, um, and. Um, also about the one article I wrote that I really enjoyed writing was about how like before you take a saw or do anything to a piece of timber, I think it's best to understand how wind flows through your area. You were just talking about it, Jared, like down in Mississippi, they get east here. Like I think before you do anything at all to a piece of habitat, you need to understand how that wind flows through that property to the letter as best you can. And I went through some of my methods on 
um, how I like to do this for hunting purposes, but if I had a big spread of land and before I'd cut the single tree down, I'd be learning all those wind directions in there and how it flows with the terrain. Um, but yeah, so other than that, I have a, I just kind of have a do-it-yourself YouTube channel just under Deer Hunter DVM and I'm on Facebook under my name. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, well, I'll be sure to get myself a copy of that North American Whitetail Habitat uh, magazine there. Catch up on your articles and yeah, Deer Hunter DVM on YouTube. Awesome, man. Well, thanks so guys, much. Well, you guys keep doing your thing too, because like as a do-it-yourself guy, no kidding to plug you guys for a minute. Like it's really important that like we're all students of the game now. And like a lot of the stuff I see you guys doing, it's stuff that you know, it's stuff that anyone can do. You don't have to have a thousand acres in Iowa and um like giant tractor implements to make a little headway for the critters, you know what I mean? So you guys keep doing your thing. I really dig it. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. Definitely. All right, Clint. Appreciate it, brother. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, guys. Clint. Thank you so much, listeners, for coming and listening once again to the Habitat Podcast. We really appreciate it. If you could, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast. If you type out something nice, I will send you a free Habitat Podcast decal. If you haven't been to our website, habitatpodcast.com, we have our Habitat property consultation services on there under the land plan tab. Check out our HP land plans there. We also have hats, t-shirts, and decals up at habitatpodcast.com. Of course, all of our podcast episodes. And then we have a new Habitat Podcast journal where you can learn about deer anatomy and some cool thoughts, um, you know, more of a blog post from us every now and then. We'd really love it if you went over to our Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, found the Habitat Podcast, and please subscribe. That really helps us. And thank you very much to our sponsors. I'd like to thank Exodus Trail Cameras. The Habitat Hook from Nation's Creations. Packer Max Cultipackers. Afflictor Broadheads. Michigan Whitetail Pursuit. The Squirrel at NutPlanter.com. And Morse Nursery. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers. <laughs>